Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. Started by Padre Gotoma and me, Paul Doran, in Belfast in 2011. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. This week we had our second live event since the easing of restrictions back in the black box. The theme was shock and we have three of those stories for you on this podcast. First up is a first timer. It's Deirdre Kelly. It seemed wrong to pack clothes for Granda's funeral, particularly as he was still alive at the time. My partner Joel and I were going to Balana because he was playing at Other Voices and it was doubtful that my mother's father would last until we made it back to Belfast. We might have to go directly from Mayo home to Donegal. I had decent clothes to wear to the funeral, a black dress with a floral print that Mammy had got me for Christmas, and a pair of loafers I'd bought to wear for a job interview the week before. I'd been so sure I'd get the job in my adult woman's shoes. So excited at the thought of handing in my notice at my job at the takeaway where my hair always smelled like the deep fat fryer. The interview was scheduled for 3 p.m. late in the afternoon and doomed before it began. It was conducted by two women, probably a few years older than me, one of whom was so violently bored I felt I should apologize to her. A bag of nerves with banal answers in my not yet broken in shoes. In the end, I decided not to bring my funeral clothes. It felt macabre. It seemed that Granda had been dying for a long time, passively moving in that direction for the past six years. There's not much else to do in one's 90s, I suppose. I had harbored a secret and irrational resentment towards him in his final years. On the 25th of October, 2015, My brother Kevin came to Belfast to tell me that our sister Fiona had died. Before he he said anything, I could see death on his face and assumed it was Granda. It was the natural order of things. Why should he live to almost 100 when Fiona hadn't made it a month past her 27th birthday? That bitterness couldn't survive the reality of Granda, however. It wasn't his fault that Fiona had died. Can you see him now? So small and confused, his world narrowed to his hospital bed and his chair by the fire. He kept a constant mournful refrain of, what's wrong? My mother didn't tell him about Fiona's death. He wouldn't remember anyway. There was no reason to upset him, even if only for a few minutes. But I often wondered if he knew. Could he smell the grief on us? We would reassure him again and again that nothing was wrong. But wasn't that a lie of sorts? Wasn't that always what was wrong? What is always wrong? No matter what else was happening on the surface, we held her ever-present absence always at heart. Balanah was grey and irredeemable as we waited for death. I got word that I hadn't got the job I'd interviewed for and wondered how many more months of hair that smelled like the deep fat fryer lay ahead of me. That night, the shower and the bed and breakfast issued only cold water. I sat on the bed, freezing and wet in my towel, and felt sorry for myself. 
Joel went downstairs to get a member of staff. He returned with the manager who, not being a plumber, took a look at the shower and confirmed that it was broken. <laughs> no one would come to fix it until the morning and on account of the festival, they were at full capacity and couldn't give us another room. There was nothing to be done. I thought of answering the phone at work and how unkind customers could be when they were angry about their delivery taking too long or being cold or having things missing. I felt vaguely embarrassed for them when their harsh words would make my voice catch in my throat as I tried not to let them hear me cry. Surely they must have had a very bad day. Or were they just badly reared? I had had a, a bad day, but I was well reared, and there was nothing to be done. We thanked the manager and accepted the complimentary drinks he offered and washed ourselves with cold water. Granda died the next morning, on the last day of February. Mommy rang while we were still in bed and assumed that I'd already heard. Well, Pet, the funeral won't be until Sunday, so you're time enough coming home. Tell Joel not to cancel the gig or anything, she said her voice warm on the phone, looking after me, even from afar, even though her daddy had just died. Oh, I said. I didn't realise he had died. I didn't think I'd be sad, but of course I was. The distance between dying and dead is very great. The gig was terrible, which made strange sense. Joel was stuffed into the corner of the pub and played bravely as no one listened. I tried very hard not to cry. When he finished, a woman came over to us, a pint of stout in her hand. Have you another job? She asked. <laughs> I work as bartender too, Joel told her. Ah, just as well, she said and left. Back in the room, I wrapped my arms around him and cried. I cried that no one listened, and, he cri and I cried that he worked so hard, and I cried for working in a miserable job, and I cried for cold showers, and I cried for Granda, and for Mammy, and I cried for Fiona. I always, always cry for Fiona. In the morning, we got the bus to Letterkenny, and I was glad to leave. I had to buy a dress and pennies, because I didn't bring my funeral clothes. Daddy met us at the bus stop, and we drove to Lifford. Sitting in the passenger seat, driving along that road, I am home. Ten new songs by Leonard Cohen was in the CD player, and Daddy put on track seven, Alexandra Leaving, our favourite song. We stopped talking to listen. Even though she sleeps upon your satin, even though she wakes you with a kiss, do not say the moment was imagined. Do not stoop to strategies like this. I can't believe I didn't get to see him before he died, I said after a while. He wasn't himself at the end, Daddy replied. For a moment I'm confused. How would Daddy know what Leonard Cohen was like at the end of his life? <laughs> but then I realised that he thinks that I meant Granda, and I don't correct him. Thank you very much. What a gorgeous story, Deirdre, and such a fantastic ending. Please come back and tell us more soon. And we even got to meet poor Joel that night, who comes out of that story as a bit of a hero, I think. Okay, next we have Dave Thompson. 
It's been a while since we heard from Dave, and he starts with a little anecdote from a previous 10 by 9 I just need to check something. Are we good and flat? I want, can I just tell that story very yeah, quick? I had a previous 10 by 9 uh, Paul took a photograph of me from the side. In what he described as, you're way ahead of me there, in what he described as an overstuffed pocket, which when it appeared on Facebook did make me look enormously well hung. <laughs> or smuggling a galley a melon, it's really hard. <laughs> it, it wasn't a good look, so tonight we're going for flat. <clears throat> that isn't my shock story, by the way. I really need to get on with it. That's my surprise story. Um, so, <clears throat> anyway, so I, I want you to come with me to a, a distant, far-off land to a time long ago before health and safety considerations and when child protection was less than adequate. Now, to be clear, I am not suggesting that this is in any way a good thing. I'm just telling it as it was. Uh, and to suggest that to, to fully appreciate this story, you will have to set aside times when you want to say, they did what? <laughs> so let me take you back to the early 90s when we kidnapped a youth club. <laughs> back in those days, we leaders were an energetic bunch. Mostly we fell into the kind of 18 to 21 bracket. We were a collection of people um, on gap years, or the JTP, the job training program, as it was then. Some of us were in nursing training, and a few of us just were at a loose end on a Friday night. And somehow, we gravitated to Sandy Rose City Mission Hall at the end of the week. Junior club on Thursday night, seniors on Fridays. Now, to tell this story fully, I need to go back a little bit. We were looking for kind of new, inventive, creative things to do with the youth club. And I think the whole thing kicked off with gladiators. Now, not the Roman gladiators. Saturday tea time on ITV, gladiators. For those of you not around in the 90s, that was kind of hard to describe, but <laughs> kind of brightly colored assault courses, contestants dueling with set gladiators like Wolf and Jet and Saracen and, you know, beating each other up with kind of large foam pads on the end of poles that looked like gigantic cotton buds. It sounds really naff now. Maybe it was really naff then, I don't know. But it was one of the most popular TV programs of the 90s. And, and every episode finished with the warning, don't try this at home, which we never did. But nobody said anything about trying it at the youth club. <laughs> so my, my memory of that particular night is a little bit blurred, but I do remember our gladiators reenactment had a similar type of duel with young people beating the melt out of each other with sticks with pillows to tape to, to, to either end. There were races around the hall on space hoppers. There were obstacle courses that seemed to have shaving foam and super soakers, because there was always super soakers. Even in the depth of winter, there might have been snow on the ground, but somebody at the club would have had a super soaker. Anyway, that all passed off, and we were looking around for something else to do. So how do you top an evening of water shaving foam and general mayhem? And somebody came up with this idea of a youth club kidnap. They'd heard about it somewhere. I'm going to say it was probably American, because it sounds about right. The plan was simple. With parental permission, the young people of the senior club would be wakened gently, 
in their bedrooms in the middle of the night and invited back to the club for some food and a film. A date was set. Parental consent was achieved. If parents were up for it, they had to be ready to answer the door between the hours of 2 and 4 a.m. This would allow for a small team of youth club leaders to sneak into the young person's bedroom, switch on the light, surprise them, and then invite them back to the hall. The night of the kidnap arrived. Youth club passed off peacefully without a water fight because nobody wanted to go through the night in soggy denim. The senior youth club members traipsed off home around 10-ish with no inkling whatsoever about what was to happen a few hours later. We, the leaders, sat down with a cup of tea and a drifter from the tuck shop. Before we set about preparing the hall, we had decided on a camp theme. Not that type of camp theme. <laughs> a campsite theme. So we erected a large family tent in the middle of the hall and set out rugs and cushions and beanbags around a, camp, a fake campfire. And in keeping with our usual approach to health and safety, from memory, this was constructed of a 60-watt light bulb, some red crepe paper, and some sticks. <laughs> Sausages were put in the oven for hot dogs. The largest TV we had was set up ready to show Mrs. Doubtfire, recently released on VHS. So hot food on a film was going to take us through to the early morning, at which time the young people would be safely returned to their homes and presumably their much-needed beds. Now, I know what you're thinking. There are a few child protection issues. <laughs> Could you stop judging me? Come on, cut, cut me some slack here. There are a few child protection issues with youth club leaders bursting into a teenager's bedroom in the middle of the night, even with parental consent. Issues... I might add, that might also apply to our brilliant idea that each kidnapping should also be captured on camcorder. <laughs> each youth club member was visited by a team of three or four leaders. Everybody had their different jobs. One stayed with the minibus outside. Later in their night, their, their main job was to prevent the dozen or so teenagers that we had picked up from piling into the next person's bedroom. It's quite a difficult job. One leader had the job of turning on the light. Another had the job of greeting the young person and wakening them gently with a question. Now, we had a phrase in those days when somebody fell asleep in the group, which, to be honest, was frequent because we all did late, late nights and were in a constant state of exhaustion. So there was always a chance that when that happened, you were greeted by the question, do you want to buy a battleship? which to this day I have no idea what it means. <clears throat> but I think the idea was it would just confuse anybody. So this is the question that we use. That was one leader's job. And then one leader had the job of filming. That way we would all be able to watch the key moments together at the hall later on that morning. I can't really remember many of the live moments particularly clearly. I suspect they're much of a muchness. Mostly the young people, unsurprisingly, were deep into their night's sleep, and they didn't move when the light was turned on. Only when someone spoke to them did they begin to stir, and there are two moments that stand out in my memory. The first 
We'll call him Wayne because that's, that's what his name was. <laughs> he, Wayne must have been about 12. He stirred very slowly and then sat up in bed rubbing his eyes as we all laughed at his Beano pyjamas that had Dennis the Medicine Nasher on the front. The second, we'll call him Harry because that wasn't his name. When Harry was about 16, Harry came to very quickly. And within a split second of seeing the light on and people in his room, something in his body punched the panic button hard. He began to yell and flail. And I can't remember the details of what he was yelling, but I do remember some of it was simply the repeated word, no. And some of it wasn't words at all. It was simply vocalized terror. Legs and arms shot in all directions as Harry kicked out and pushed himself back into the corner of the bed, looking for some kind of escape route, which wasn't there because he was in the corner of the room. And after a stunned reaction from everyone else, realistically four or five seconds of no one speaking, one of the leaders broke into Harry's panic. Harry, it's us. And the flailing and the shouting stopped and Harry focused, took in each face in the room and then collapsed back down onto the bed again, utterly exhausted. He did come to see the funny side. <laughs> By four o'clock or so, we were all at the hall, blearily tucking into hot dogs and watching Mrs Doubtfire. Afterwards then, we showed the videos of each young person being woken up and we laughed together. Child protection issues aside, I suspect it was one of the best nights that we had at the youth club, and I suspect many of those young people still tell this story, although possibly to their therapist. <laughs> I remember the video of Harry being watched a few times by the leaders. We started off laughing a lot, but I remember it becoming less funny with time, and I remember one of the leaders asking, who did he think we were and what did he think was going to happen? And to some degree, we knew. Because this was a time when so many of our young men were being drawn into the paramilitaries. And one of them was already in prison. Falling foul of the paramilitaries came with a price. Everybody knew how the system worked. And nobody asked what Harry might have been up to or might have been involved in. And so the tables were turned. We started out wanting to surprise the young people, but finished up surprised, shocked, into the insight of being 16 in Sandy Row in the 1990s. Thank you very much, Dave. Brilliant story. Do you still work with children? <laughs> Dave, thanks so much. So funny and yet so dark. Fantastic. And just in case you're wondering, Sandy Row is a deprived area of Belfast. And no, Dave no longer works with young people. Now, here's the bit where I ask if you can help support 10 by 9 which is always free and always will be. We have our Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our costs. We try to keep our overheads low, but there are always some outgoings. 
or you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Equally, you can support us by just turning up, by listening, and enjoying. Thank you. Okay, next is our third story, and it's from Louise Nealon. She's been coming to 10by9 for years, and we love her stories. Just to warn you, something odd happened to our recording, so there is mild distortion at the end of this, but it is very mild. Take it away, Louise. Hi, my name is Louise, and I wrote a book. Um, If my father were here, he would be shocked that I feel the need to introduce myself. It would be like Beyonce telling the barista at Starbucks what to write in her cup. (laughs) She's just humouring them, he would think. These are cultured people. These people keep up with the times. They go to storytelling events in a city that has a cathedral quarter, for Christ's sakes. These people read the news. If they don't physically go out and buy a paper, they have it on their phones. So, of course, the word would have reached them by now. Because the fact that his daughter has written a book is about as monumental a world event as Italia 90. It turned out to be a blessing in disguise that my debut novel was published at the height of a worldwide lockdown. My dad had never been to a book launch and I was always worried about how I was going to manage his expectations. I have been to many book launches and they have always been lovely, low-key gatherings in the back of a bookshop. They are usually at most an hour in length. People come straight from work to listen to a short reading from the author and sip lukewarm wine from plastic cups. The most enjoyable book launches I've been to are unquestionably the book launches of Jan Carson, because her mother makes the most delicious shortbread biscuits, the kind that frequent my dreams. The general vibe of most book launches is a reading in a bookshop, followed by a trip to the pub to pile into a snug for a quiet drink or two. My dad, wanted my book launch to take place on the new grounds of our local GA club. <laughs> it would be a black tie affair. <laughs> Think the great Gatsby meets Father Ted. His good friend and local hotelier, John O'Neill of the Hamlet, would provide catering. In his vision, several waiters in white gloves would meander through the crowds with flutes of champagne balanced on trays. I stopped him when he began to ponder over whether to have a buffet-style beef stroganoff and chicken curry or go full-on sit-down meal with a choice between steak or salmon. (laughs) I told him that book launches weren't usually catered affairs. He told me that that was all very well and good, but he can't very well have a food truck for the kids during the day and nothing for the adults. What are you talking about? I asked. And that's when he told me. He was planning a carnival for all the kids of the parish. (laughs) In an unprecedented act of philanthropy, my father was using my book launch as a way to remind the youth that dreams can come true. (laughs) Because, as he said himself, it's all very well and good to be be Louise Nealon, but you're at nothing if you can't inspire the next Louise Nealon to pick up a pen. He said Louise Nealon the way a commentator would say Aidan O'Shea or Joe Canning or Beyonce. (laughs) Thanks be to COVID, I was able to have my book launch at home. (laughs) 
and my father contented himself with ordering not one, but two kegs of Guinness from the local pub. <laughs> Dad is regularly disappointed by my non-existent celebrity status. He is insulted whenever people ask me the name of my book or what it's about. He looks embarrassed for them, as though they were hassling James Joyce to summarise Ulysses. <laughs> Does anyone not read great literature anymore? Mourns the man who struggles to read the sports section of the newspaper. He was recently appalled upon discovering that one of his friend's daughters hadn't heard of my book. She had been away in China, where the book hadn't been published yet. <laughs> so she was forgiven for living under a rock. They mustn't have a family WhatsApp group, he mumbled under his breath. Dad has gotten more phone calls congratulating him about the book than I have. <laughs> when I was interviewed on national radio, a man texted in to wish me all the best, and also to inform me that I used to do silage for Dad. <laughs> Dad also sees himself as the godfather of my book sales. We have had many heated arguments over the fact that I refuse to sell copies of my book out of the boot of my car. <laughs> he was baffled when I informed him that I was actually not in my drop description to go door to door selling copies of my own novel. <laughs> he looked at me as if to say, what's the point of baking cakes if you've no one to eat them? <laughs> you see, my dad, as well as being a farmer, is a kind of entrepreneur. He is an active member of the community and the local GAA. And if there is ever a fundraiser to be done, my dad is the man to speak to. He'd convince Hitler to buy a raffle ticket just to get rid of him. In 2017, he was involved in organising the Strictly Come Dancing, which meant choosing victims, I mean volunteers, to dance like Egypts in front of their neighbours, all in the name of charity. I was one of those Egypts. I commuted from Belfast to Kildare three times a week to practice the cha-cha because it was easier than saying no to my dad. Another man told us that he had nipped out of the local pub for a quick smoke and a t-shirt in the snow and dad wouldn't let him back in until he agreed to dan dance the tango with Joan from Super Value. <laughs> Granted, dad's methods are sometimes extreme, but the man knows how to close a deal. Dad left school when he was 15 to milk cows with his dad. My mother also comes from a dairy farming background. Both of my parents were raised on hard work. Dad gets up at six, uh, at six in the morning, and to be honest, the only time he sleeps properly is when he nods off at the, din the, the dinner table. He gets up several times during the night to check on cows calving. He seemed sceptical of my work schedule when I moved home to write my book, which mostly involved me sleeping in, napping during the day, and rarely getting out of my pyjamas. When I actually finished the book, I shocked myself. I was even more surprised when Dad asked to read it. You see, Dad isn't much of a reader. My mother, on the other hand, is my first reader, and it's the reason that the book exists. Apart from fueling me with meat and two veg dinners, my mommy was the first person to believe that the whole publishing a book dream could come true. She said that she couldn't wait until the day that she walked into a bookshop and saw my book on the shelf. And we got to have that day, and it was wonderful. 
anyone who has a creative person in the family knows the precarious relationship we have to reality. The rest of the world struggles to recognize what we do as actual work. And we have trouble making ends meet, both financially and emotionally. The best thing about getting a book deal was that my parents didn't have to worry about me anymore. I'm always surprised when people show up to my readings. It only begins to make sense when most of the audience come up to me after the event to inform me of the tenuous connection they have to my dad. <laughs> and all of them have the same bone to pick with me. They are disappointed to learn that I do not, in fact, sell copies of my own book. <laughs> Some people arrive to the back door of my family home to congratulate me, a 20-euro note in their fists, casually asking for their signed copy. I try to direct them to the nearest bookshop, but they're not having any of it. I explain to them that I do have one or two spare copies in the house, but they're not for sale. I'm really sorry I don't have change. And unfortunately, I don't accept card either. <laughs> I have been known to offer my own copy of the book to particularly disgruntled would-be customers for free because they tell, what they tell me that that's not the point. That's not the point at all. They came here to support me. There is no way they would accept a freebie from a starving artist. Sure, look at the state of me. <laughs> It's almost as if I have personally invited them to a fundraiser for myself, and I'm not accepting donations. <laughs> they shake their head at me and look at me as though to say, well, you're not your father's daughter anyway. Thank you very much, Louise. Always a pleasure. This, folks, is the book. Book, Louise Nealon. Isn't that amazing? Um, it's called. It's called Snowflake, and it's great. Uh, if you want to know about the Culture Day out, this is where this will tell you all about it. I would like. It is signed, but it's not really signed because it wasn't signed to me. So, before you go, Louise. And she did leave a little inscription before she left. What did she write? Well, that's between me and Louise, our little secret. Thanks so much, Louise, and how lovely to have you back at the 10 by 9 mic. By the way, you can see Louise telling a story when we were on Zoom from her home in Kildare, and that's on our YouTube channel. All our Zoom events are up there in bite-sized chunks. And that is it for this podcast. We love hearing from you and you can get in touch with us on social media, email or via our website, 10by9.com. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes. Tell as many people as you can about the podcast. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another one soon. For now though, bye-bye.